I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. Just a note before we begin that today's episode contains brief descriptions of sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. The Justice Department's Inspector General released a scathing report last week on the FBI's failure to properly investigate extensive sex abuse allegations against former USA gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar. During a three-year internal review, FBI officials gave misleading and downright false answers when confronted about those failures. Inspector General Michael Horowitz paints a disturbing portrait of the nation's premier law enforcement agency being told stomach-churning details of what would become one of the most shocking cases of serial sexual abuse in memory, yet failing to follow up with key witnesses or even to notify other law enforcement agencies of potential sex crimes happening in their jurisdictions. Horowitz notes that according to civil court filings, about 70 women and girls were abused by Nassar between the time when the FBI was first told of the allegations in the summer of 2015 and when Michigan officials finally arrested him more than a year later on the basis of separate information. The inspector general found that while the FBI's Indianapolis office was dealing with the Nassar allegations, the head of that office, Jay Abbott, was talking with Steve Penny, then president of USA Gymnastics, about getting Abbott a job with the Olympic Committee. When agents confronted Abbott, who applied for the job but didn't get it, he falsely claimed to have never applied. He retired in 2018, and the Justice Department declined this spring to prosecute him for these allegedly false statements. Nassar has been accused by more than 330 girls and women, including Olympians Ali Raisman, Michaela Maroney, and Simone Biles, of sexual abuse, often committed under the guise of medical treatment. Our guest this week is Rachel Den Hollander. She was the first woman to publicly accuse Nassar of sexual abuse. Back in 2016, she told her story to the Indianapolis Star and Michigan State investigators, who subsequently pursued criminal charges against Nassar. She was the last of 156 women and girls to confront Nassar during his sentencing hearing. In a 36-minute statement that drew global attention, she recounted what had been done to her as a 15-year-old gymnast. Larry meticulously groomed me for the purpose of exploiting me for his sexual gain. He penetrated me, he groped me, he fondled me, and then he whispered questions about how it felt. He engaged in degrading and humiliating sex acts without my consent or permission. During her victim impact statement, Rachel repeatedly posed a question to the court. How much is a little girl worth? The packed courtroom gave her a standing ovation. The judge called her the five-star general of the Army of Survivors. Nassar is now serving a 60-year term for federal child pornography crimes and a sentence of 40 to 175 years for assaulting nine girls and women in the state of Michigan. Rachel 
now 36, lives with her husband and four kids in Louisville, Kentucky. In an op-ed for The Post, she wrote that the Inspector General report shows how difficult the road can be for survivors. Here is our conversation. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. You wrote after reading the Inspector General report that you felt so many different emotions, including gut-wrenching pain. Can you talk about the mix of feelings? On the one hand, I'm I'm grateful we got that report. So many survivors who are failed by the justice system, uh, there's never any answers. Uh, there's no one who looks into it. There's no one who cares. Uh, and so I'm grateful that we got those answers. Um, at the same time, it was a deeply painful report to read and a deeply painful process to get there. Yeah, we didn't get that report until we had uh, six years past the initial time that the FBI first received uh, notice of what Larry was doing. It took six years. It took hundreds of survivor voices. Um, it took having a team of civil attorneys and an incredible assistant attorney general who achieved a conviction uh, to even be able to get where we got. Um, yeah, and then when you read the report, um, yeah, there's, again, a, a wide range uh, of, of realities that come from it. And the first reality is just that nobody cared. Yeah, and that question of why, why did these people, why did these little girls, why did these women not matter to anybody? Um, and then we, you, you, know, you, you read through the report and you see the failures and the outright corruption and collusion that's laid out in the report and multiple FBI agents who lied to investigators. And the conclusion of the report is that there's nothing that's going to be done. These agents have all either voluntarily moved on or voluntarily retired with their government pensions intact. There's no accountability. There are no consequences. And so what we really have is a report that lays out all the failings but concludes nothing can be done. It doesn't matter. It still doesn't matter. For those who don't know your story, can you explain your decision to come forward to law enforcement and to the Indianapolis Star about what you experienced as a high school student in the year 2000? So I was abused by Larry from ages 15 to almost 17. Um, and when I began to realize, even just have some level of understanding that what I experienced wasn't normal and wasn't actually medical treatment, uh, my mom and I actually had a conversation. I was 17, almost 18 years old at this point when I disclosed to her. Uh, and she said, you know, what do, what do we do with this information? Do we go to law enforcement? Uh, and at that point in time, as a 17, almost 18-year-old, uh, there were a couple of thought processes I had. You know, at the time of my abuse, my thought process was, Larry has been treating young lady, young girls for uh, for years. You know, by, by the time I saw him, he had already been the doctor for the Olympic team for uh, since 1996. He's treating little girls every day. He clearly does this type of treatment regularly. That was obvious from uh, from his behavior. And then my thought process was, if there's any question about whether this treatment is valid, surely somebody would have stopped him. Somebody would have asked those questions. There's no way somebody hasn't described what's going on in this exam room. There's no way somebody hasn't seen it. So the fact that I'm here in this exam room means that this must be valid medical treatment. I had a very clear linear thought process at 15 years old. And when I began to realize that actually Larry's treatment wasn't medical treatment, what I realized was I was right. He was abusing little girls every day. And what that meant was not that nobody had ever spoken up, but that whoever had spoken up must be being systematically silenced. Mm -hmm. And at 17, I said to my mom, there's no way I can do this without media pressure. There's no way one voice is ever going to be enough. 
a Jane Doe is never going to be enough. And we actually talked when I was 17 years old about taking my story to a local news station and seeing if we could get some kind of coverage just in hopes that we would reach other victims who could come forward uh, and be able to, to be able to take the narrative away from Larry. Um, because at 17, I realized if I speak out against Larry, you know, not only is he in control of the narrative, but we have a Big Ten university who's in control of the narrative. We have yeah. USAG, the national governing body for our gymnastics teams, one of the sports that makes the most money in the Olympic game. Olympic Games, USAG uh, is is protected and sheltered by the USOPC, and the USOPC is a creation of the Senate. Just so listeners are clear, the Big Ten University you're referring to is Michigan State, where Nassar was employed. USAG is short for USA Gymnastics, and the USOPC is the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the governing body for all Olympic sports. It was created by Congress, and Congress has the power to amend or revoke that charter. So when I followed the chain of command upwards uh, and looked at abuse and abusive dynamics at 17, I was 100% convinced that the problem was not that nobody had warned about Larry before. The problem was that there were so many people in authority who were able to silence whoever was coming forward. So what I was waiting for for 16 years was really just the chance to be believed. And when I saw the Indie Star article on USAG's cover-up of sexually abusive coaches, in 2016, uh, I spent some time just very quickly, you know, researching the, the Indie Star staff and how they had done their reporting. And my first thought process was, I was right. USAG is systematically covering up sexual abuse. And if they covered up the abuse of their coaches, they would cover up Larry's abuse too. And my second thought was, this is it. Now's the time. And so I reached out to the Indie Star and I told them my story and I said, I'll come forward as publicly as necessary if you can just get the truth out. You can take video, you can use my name, my face, my identity. I'll put all the details out there. I'll do whatever it takes if you can just get the story out. And my hope was to force Larry to confront some of these allegations in the public square and to be able to take control of the narrative, both from him and from the institutions surrounding him. Because I knew that's what it was going to take because unfortunately what we see in this FBI report is not an anomaly, it's actually normal. This is a common battle that victims face is that law enforcement either doesn't believe them or doesn't care. You open your op-ed by saying real life doesn't follow kind of the tidy plot arc of an episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And I think it's so important for people to understand, as, as you write in the conclusion of your piece, if there's a silver lining to the ugliness of this Justice Department report, it's that it tells the truth about the realities that survivors face in being believed and in being heard. Absolutely. Yeah. And and what what is most shocking to me almost is not just what this report contains, but all the other pieces that it doesn't contain. In addition to the multiple failings and corruption in the FBI, we also had two police departments at various points in time that received direct reports of Larry's abuse. Neither of them did proper investigations. And we also had a separate Title IX investigation of Larry that cleared him. And we had the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department that actually tried to kill the Indy Star story when Steve Penny found out that there was going to be a report on Larry and on USAG and their, and their policies on abuse. Steve Penny picked up the phone and he texted the head of IMPD's Child Sex Abuse Division, 
a detective named Bruce Smith, and he asked Bruce to help him, quote, body slam the sources, meaning the reporters for this story. Wow. And the head of the child sex abuse division at IMPD did. They actually sent out a press release and reached out to the Indie Star to basically tell them you're barking up the wrong tree, go look somewhere else. And a question that we still have that no one wants to answer or investigate is how in the world the president of USAG knew that he could text the head of the child sex abuse division in Indianapolis and get help trying to kill a story about how USAG covers up sex abuse. An internal Indianapolis police investigation in 2019 concluded that the detective, Lieutenant Smith, did not violate departmental policies by working with Penny to deflect criticism of the organization's child abuse reporting policies. But a spokeswoman for the Metropolitan Police Department said that internal affairs investigators were, quote, unsuccessful in obtaining all of the statements sought in this instance due to the unwillingness of external individuals with knowledge of the situation to cooperate with the investigation, as well as indictments in other jurisdictions. Absent that additional information, the spokeswoman for the Indianapolis police said that internal affairs found no violation of department policy or procedure. Now, Penny resigned under pressure from his job with USA Gymnastics in 2017 and was charged in Texas in 2018 with evidence tampering in the Nassar case. He's accused of ordering the removal of documents related to Nassar's activities at the National Team Training Center. Penny has pleaded not guilty and is still awaiting trial. So what we still don't know goes way beyond the scope of this FBI report. This is the tip of the iceberg, but this is a story that survivors face every single day. In 2019, Rain reported, uh, and, and they catalog they catalog every year uh, the, the approximation uh, of how many rape reports actually result in criminal charges and jail time. The general number that these hover around is out of about every 230 rapes reported to the police, only five to six are going to result in uh, criminal charges and conviction. That's that's what Rain reported in 2019, but the numbers are pretty consistently hovering around there. What sexual assault survivors face in speaking up is a system that does not care or cares and is poorly trained. You came forward before the Me Too movement. There is this sense that things are better than they were five years ago. I'm interested in your view of how much easier it's gotten for other survivors to come forward or to the extent to which it it hasn't because of, of everything you're talking about. Now, I think it depends on what we're talking about when we say come forward. I'm very grateful that the Me Too movement has, to some degree, normalized discussing sexual assault. Uh, and you're right, I came forward uh, over a year before the Me Too movement. There was already a large group of us uh, in Michigan who had made our sexual abuse international headlines in an effort to normalize these conversations and to stop an abuser. Uh, and the Me Too movement certainly furthered that work in incredible ways. And so it, is, it has made it easier on a, on a personal level to speak about abuse. No one really has seen the needle move on conviction rates, though. Hmm. Yeah, and, and that's a really sobering reality. Because if yeah. we are not changing our conviction rates, we're not getting abusers off the street. And, and just as importantly, we're not signaling that we care enough about abuse to do something. And so that leaves survivors in a position where they still don't feel like they have any recourse because they don't have any recourse really in our justice system. Uh, and it signals to those who are still abusers that there's not a whole lot that can be done. Uh, and if they can just keep their victims quiet long enough 
the halls of justice are going to close to them both criminally and civilly. Mm. So while, while on a colloquial level, it's easier to discuss, on a practical level, we have not seen justice move at all. You mentioned that it wasn't just the FBI that failed. It was several local law enforcement agencies. And you call out by name someone in your op-ed, W.J. Abbott, the FBI special agent in charge in Indianapolis. And you, you say sometimes sexual abuse isn't investigated properly because of outright corruption. One of the many stunning parts of the IG report is that Abbott lied to the inspector general multiple times about applying for the position at USA Gymnastics, about his conversations with Steve Penny, you know, on and about what he did to follow up on these reports and these tips. You are a lawyer by training. If you or I make false statements to the FBI, we go to prison. Uh, this is an FBI agent who's lying to the inspector general. I mean, should should that be a felony? Should that be prosecuted? Should Abbott lose his pension? What should be the penalty for what he did? I think your point that if a normal person, a lay person, were to lie to the FBI, that's a felony and it's prosecutable. Uh, that's that's where we start. That's just that's just the ground level that we should be talking about here. Uh, the reality is that Jay Abbott did break the law. You know, he violated FBI's ethical policies. Uh, he he definitely tiptoed around, if not crossed the line, for some of their policies on. Uh, collusion and conflict of interest during investigations. And then he lied to federal investigators. Um, at minimum, we should be discussing criminal charges. But then the other really difficult discussion we have to have is what can be done to help the victims? Because mm -hmm. over a hundred survivors continued to be sexually abused after the FBI knew exactly what Larry was doing and how he was doing that. And many of those victims were new victims little girls that never had to become sexual assault victims had the FBI just done their job. So then we have to start having the conversation of how do we start pursuing justice for the survivors? Because criminal charges are important as a public statement. They're important as a deterrent. They're important uh, on a punitive level, uh, demonstrating that this conduct is not acceptable. But criminal charges don't restore the damage done to survivors. It doesn't make it easier to get therapy. It doesn't make it easier to get medical coverage for your PTSD-related conditions. So how do we start making restitution to the people who are harmed by the bad actors in law enforcement? And that's going to be a conversation that's going to be difficult because it involves our sovereign immunity laws. Yeah, sovereign immunity was initially begun really to protect officers and first responders who need to make life and death decisions. But what it really has become is a complete bar to any kind of civil justice and restitution process for people who are harmed by law enforcement officers who are clear bad actors. Yeah. We're not talking about a split-second judgment call here. We're talking about intentionally pursuing a conflict of interest. We're talking about intentional lying and deception. We're talking about extreme gross negligence and violation of multiple FBI policies that resulted in hundreds of children being sexually assaulted. 
How do we start having those conversations about how we make restitution and pursue justice for the victims, not just the public statement of criminal charges? Because both are really important. Abbott's lawyer said he his client had reviewed the report. He put out a statement last week. Josh Minkler, I'd love to hear your reaction. He said, Mr. Abbott, thanks the law enforcement officers and prosecutors who brought Larry Nasser to justice. Mr. Abbott hopes the courageous victims of Nasser's horrible crime find peace. What did you make of that? That is a slap in the face. That's an absolute slap in the face. Because Jay Abbott is the reason, one of the many reasons, that Larry was able to continue abusing for so long. You can't harm somebody and then wish them peace without taking responsibility for your conduct. I wouldn't accept a statement like that from my two-year-old. Now, I've got four kids. And when my two-year-old does something that many two-year-olds do, like smack a sibling, I require my two-year-old to go through a very specific process. Say, I am sorry that I did. And at two years old, she's already capable of doing this. I am sorry that I hit you and I took your toy. And then I require her to acknowledge the damage that she did, that I hurt you and I didn't respect your property. And then I require my two-year-old to ask, what can I do to help you feel better? Because that really is the process that every responsible person should be expected to take. Acknowledge what you did wrong. Acknowledge the damage that came from what you did wrong. And then take concrete steps to repairing that damage. If my two-year-old can follow that process, we certainly should be able to expect law enforcement officers that are endowed with some of the most authority in our country to be able to follow that process. That statement from Jay Abbott is a slap in the face. He caused irreconcilable and irreparable damage to over a hundred children. And then he has the gall to wish them peace without taking any responsibility for the role that he played. That's disgusting. Thankfully, you also got to work with a detective who did take your allegation and other allegations seriously. And I, I don't know if it's the two-year-old, but you and your husband gave your daughter, Alora, the middle name Renee, to honor the Michigan State University detective, Lieutenant uh, Andrea Renee Munford, who took your allegation seriously. You describe in the op-ed a culture that continues to question victims, but there were also clear individual failings by people like Abbott. Reflecting on your own experience and what we learned from this Inspector General report, how much of what went wrong here was systemic versus individual failing? And I understand both can be true, but what do you see as the the balance there? You don't get to systemic failures without individual failures. And so I, I do think we're seeing both. I think it's important to nail down exactly what went wrong on an individual level, um, that they just didn't care, that they're not motivated to do the right thing. Where is it a breakdown in policy? Where is it outright corruption? And then where do we have breakdowns that are, that are not motivating uh, law enforcement officers to do the right thing, that are not cautioning them against doing the wrong thing? Yeah, and again, I think some of that has to do with uh, even our sovereign immunity legislation. If there are no consequences for your bad actions, you don't have a whole lot of motivation to avoid them uh, unless you're going to be internally motivated by care for someone else. And clearly, these FBI agents were not. Um, and so I think it is important to identify the individual breakdowns. But I think it's equally important to recognize that these individual breakdowns are part of a systemic problem. We have a systemic problem with poorly trained law enforcement officers who don't understand what evidence in sexual assault cases look like, who don't understand trauma and trauma responses, and so who often engage with survivors in a way that's uh, very damaging to the survivors, uh, and who don't understand the evidence even when they're looking right at it. 
So we have an we have an epidemic of poorly trained law enforcement officials. We have an epidemic of law enforcement officers who just don't care. They're not motivated to do the right thing. Uh, you know, these these Jane Does are just numbers and names to them rather than valuing uh, the people who are actually at the receiving end of this conduct. Uh, and we do have a problem in our culture with caring about sexual abuse uh, and valuing survivors and recognizing the damage that is done from sexual abuse. That's not limited to law enforcement. We have a cultural problem with that. Cultural problems can't be fixed entirely by Washington, but there are things government can do. There is just bipartisan disgust with what has happened to you and hundreds of others. And at the very least, there's support for another congressional hearing. After that report came out last week, Dick Blumenthal, the Democrat from Connecticut, and Jerry Moran, the Republican from Kansas, who worked together on a Senate investigation two years ago, said the report was chilling and said that maybe there should be more hearings about holding the FBI accountable. There may be lawmakers listening. What should the federal government do? Obviously, a single law isn't going to change the cultural problems you're talking about, but there are... You mentioned sovereign immunity, but are there other things Congress could do right now to to help prevent what happened to you and so many others from happening again? Absolutely. Uh, holding a hearing uh, and having further information gathering, shining a spotlight on what's going on, continuing these conversations, that's an important foundational beginning. I do think we have to have a very serious discussion about uh, the legal strongholds that prevent survivors from having any access to our justice system. You know, the reality is the right to file a lawsuit does control behavior. Yeah, an attorney I work with is very fond of saying that, and, and he's right. When you have consequences in place for bad behavior, it does help motivate good behavior. It helps motivate institutions to pursue hiring good people. It helps motivate institutions to pursue proper training. Uh, and so having access to the justice system for survivors uh, is critically important. That means looking at sovereign immunity legislation. That means looking at our statute of limitations, looking at the legal bars that are preventing survivors from just getting in the doors of our courtrooms, from ha even having access to our justice system. It means hard conversations about allocation of resources. You know, oftentimes SVU units are dramatically under-resourced, uh, particularly given the widespread pervasity of sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual abusive material, commonly called child porn, CSAM. Uh, given the, perva the pervasiveness of this crime in this country, we are dramatically under-resourced for being able to stop it. It means looking at how we're allocating our personnel, what sorts of things we are prioritizing, uh, pursuing investigatively and from a prosecutorial standpoint, and whether or not we need to shift some of our priorities. I mean, you know, a fascinating statistic that comes out of the Department of Justice uh, when you're looking at average length of jail sentences for sexual abusers uh, is that according to the DOJ, the average length of sentence for a sexual abuser is often less than the uh, average length of sentence for possession of a controlled substance. Now, if we are pursuing, investigating, and, and resourcing and prosecuting possessing a controlled substance more than we're pursuing, investigating, and prosecuting, and properly punishing the rape of a child, we have a problem with how we are prioritizing our entire justice system. Uh, and that has, you know, that has widespread ramifications, uh, you know, even, even for people who, are, who receive disproportionate sentences uh, for, for possession of a controlled substance. We need to start having those hard conversations or nothing is going to change. The report from the inspector general was 120 pages. We've talked about kind of some of the key themes, but were there other things in there that you think haven't gotten enough attention in the 
the few days since the reports come out? Yeah, I think a fascinating dynamic that we see in the Nasser case, and really we see this in a lot of um, the the sexual assault cases that finally end, uh, is the role that the press played, um, and the role that the press played in motivating people to do the right thing and in getting the right, um, getting the answers out. Uh, because as much as we like to think that oftentimes it's you know it's a matter of just reporting to the police or uh, you know just telling your story. Oftentimes, the press really does play a critical component uh, in creating the public pressure necessary to get to the answers. Um, you know, and and the Larry Nasser case is not unique in this regard. Uh, the press played a massive role in the Weinstein case and the Jeffrey Epstein case and the Catholic Church, uh, and I could go on and on. You know, Penn State. Um, the more you are able to shine a light in the darkness the more you create space for these conversations and the more you create the public pressure to actually generate change. Uh, and that that's a critical component. The number of times that that FBI report says, or the DOJ report says, however, the FBI did nothing until, until the MSU investigation and until the newspaper articles came out. Um, yeah, and, and that you know, while, while journalists play an absolutely critical role um, that that idea of continuing the conversation, of shining a light in the darkness, of pushing for answers, of generating societal pressure uh, to do things better and to create change, uh, that is also the function of all of our collective voices coming together. You know, and, and so recognizing both that responsibility and that power that our collective voices have, I think is a critical step that all of us need to take. We have talked about changing the culture, changing public policy. I want to go back and, and close by talking about USA Gymnastics. Since the 2016 Olympics, they've now, I think, had four different people hold the position as, as head of USA Gymnastics since Rio. Has the sport gotten better or is there still more concern with winning medals than protecting children? I think there's still deep concern about the health of the sport for a lot of reasons. Uh, not the least of which is that USAG again still has not done the most basic things to actually signal a desire to change. Uh, we have been asking for five years for an independent investigation into USAG's handling of sexual abuse, any bad actors uh, in you know in USAG, including uh, those who may have enabled or helped cover up not just the Nasser investigation, but for so many coaches. Um, and USAG has steadfastly refused an independent assessment. They commissioned what is now called the Deborah Daniels Report, but that was a review of uh, USAG's policies with a forward-looking focus. They specifically prohibited Deborah Daniels from looking into any specific cases of abuse and any bad actors in covering up that abuse. So as much as USAG says, oh, we've participated with you know six or seven independent investigations, that's just not true. It's a flat-out lie. Um, and so if you're not willing to diagnose the problem, you're going to have a very difficult time fixing it. And USAG has been unwilling to engage in any level of diagnostics. There has been no acknowledgement or recognition uh, of the many survivors uh, whose voices they silenced for a very long time. Jennifer Say, Dominique Mosciano, Jamie Dancher, uh, and the way that they treated her. And Jamie Dancher is an excellent example uh, because at the point she came forward and told her story uh, about what had happened with Larry, uh, you know, she, was, she was a Jane Doe publicly, but USAG knew who she was. And they allowed her to just be savaged publicly. And they hired private investigators to try to dig up dirt on Jamie, uh, knowing full well that she was telling the truth because they had known about Larry for over a year. 
by that point. And they still did that to her. You know, there has been no acknowledgement of how they have treated whistleblowers. And if you can't diagnose the problem, you can't acknowledge the problem. I do not trust you to fix the problem. The opening ceremonies of the Tokyo Olympics are Friday night. We're going to see other survivors competing, including Simone Biles. Do you plan to watch? Yeah, I do, because Simone and these athletes have done such an incredible job showing the beauty of the sport and raising their voices to push for change. Uh, So I do plan to watch. But I think part of what comes out of that is the recognition that our athletes deserve so much better than USAG is giving them. They deserve to be able uh, to show the beauty of the sport and their incredible accomplishments without this hanging over them, without having to battle an organization uh, for their own personal safety. Our athletes deserve so much better. You have three daughters. Will your daughters do gymnastics? Would you let them? You know, they are begging to, and I would love for them to be able to engage in the parts of the sport that are beautiful and healthy and good because gymnastics itself is not the problem. It's the culture and what we've normalized in the sport. That's the problem. But right now, USAG has refused to take any responsibility for the damage done to their athletes. They have completely stalled in the bankruptcy process. They've refused to take responsibility. They've refused to diagnose the problem. I can't entrust my daughters to an organization that cannot be honest about the most basic things related to child safety. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk about your story and this really important issue. Thank you for having me. Team USA has produced the last four Olympic all-around gold medalists and captured every major team title since the 2011 World Championships, a streak it is heavily favored to extend in Tokyo, thanks to Simone Biles. Meanwhile, USA Gymnastics remains mired in Chapter 11 proceedings in federal bankruptcy court in the Southern District of Indiana. The organization proposed a $217 million settlement for Nassar's accusers last year as part of a reorganization plan filed with the court. But attorneys for the majority of survivors said they would not accept such a deal. In Washington, the FBI issued a statement responding to the inspector general's report saying, quote, the FBI will never lose sight of the harm that Nassar's abuse caused. The actions and inactions of certain FBI employees described in the report are inexcusable and a discredit to the organization. As Rachel read that report last week, she remembered a day three years ago when she took one of her daughters to an event with other survivors. With her hair in pigtails, her then three-year-old looked around the room and asked, Who are they, Mommy? And Rachel told their story in the simplest way she could. That night, in her grief, Rachel wrote a poem to those little girls and to her own daughters. It tried to answer the question that she posed during her victim impact statement at Nassar's sentencing. How much is a little girl worth? This was Rachel's answer. Worth changing laws, worth all the fight, worth whatever it takes to do 
what is right, worth more than money or trophies or fame, worth more than power or protecting a name. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels and Michael Duffy. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can listen and follow us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review. The links to both Rachel's op-ed and the Justice Department's Inspector General's report are in our show notes. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another edition of Please Go On, because there's always more to say.